Welcome. Last week, August 21st to be precise, was the 55th anniversary of the Prague Spring Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia. So today we're going to discuss a few points. We're going to discuss some of the events leading up to the invasion, some of the consequences and responses within Czechoslovakia and the international community. And we'll also step back to consider some of the broader implications of what happened in this very unique period of history. Today may be a slightly shorter episode than usual. I was actually hoping we would have a little bit of the Soviet foreign policy perspective from my colleague and Greek namesake Nikos, but unfortunately because of an emergency join us today. So sorry folks, you're just stuck with me today. So let's get right to it. Our story actually begins in the wake of the Second World War. Uh, so the first crucial event was in late February of 1948, where there was in Czechoslovakia a coup d'etat, where the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia with Soviet backing and support, that's a very important point that I'll ask you to bear in mind, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia seized power. So they abolished elections, they abolished multi-party rule. There was a this party would maintain power for the next 40 years, the next 40 years until the so-called Vel the Velvet Revolution of 19. Now, if we fast forward to the 1960s, things were not going very well in Czechoslovakia. The economy was stagnating. Czech exports were not doing very well. They were not competitive internationally. The industrialization and modernization of the company a country was proceeding very sluggishly and there was widespread dissatisfaction among Czech and Slovak citizens. Enter Alexander Dubček. Alexander Dubček was a Slovak statesman who in the 1960s was the first secretary of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. And as I was informed by our producer Daniel just prior to going on the show, these days, the history books tend to regard Dubček in a favorable in a favorable light overall. He sincerely tried to democratize the country, liberalize the country, uh, and this leads us to the actual Prague Spring itself. It was a series of liberalizing reforms undertaken by Dubček's government in the year 1968. And uh, these included a few things. Uh, for one thing, he was trying to, Dubček was trying to decentralize the economy to encourage industry, encourage innovation. Particularly significant is the fact that he was trying to introduce freedom of expression, freedom of the press. So the gradually the news media were allowed to present different perspectives, not necessarily favorable to the government freedom of travel, so individual rights, civil rights, and more economic rights. And in many quarters, these attempts at reforms were greeted quite positively. Unfortunately, there were conservative elements, and I'm using conservative in the sense of Marxist-Leninist uh, conservative elements, within the party that were strongly hostile to these attempted reforms. Also hostile to these attempted liberalizing measures of Dubček, was the Soviet Union uh, at that time under the leadership of Brezhnev. Uh, the Soviet Union viewed this, these 
attempts at democratizing the country with considerable suspicion and considerable hostility. On the one hand, the USSR was concerned about this potentially valuable satellite country slipping through their fingers and moving gradually closer to the West, moving closer to the Western European countries and closer to the influence of NATO, for example. So uh, over the course of the, the spring and the summer months, there were a series of meetings between Dubček and Brezhnev, between the Soviet leadership and the leadership of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. And of course, Dubček repeatedly affirmed his commitment to the principles of Marxism and Leninism, his commitment to the solidarity of the international proletariat. But as Dubček stressed in his various press appearances, he was trying to create what he called socialism with a human face. And any discussion of this period of the what was going on in Czechoslovakia in the late 60s, and particularly what Dubček was trying to create, that phrase invariably comes up, socialism with a human face, which whole, still maintains the principles of Marxism and Leninism, but with some liberalizing, democratizing elements, including, as we mentioned, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, travel, and some slight measures towards relaxing equalization. It would be interesting, as this is where I wish we had Nikos here, to, to make a comparison between this and what's been going on in China in the last few decades. Uh, if you've listened to Scott McDonald talk about the current situation in China, he uses the term market authoritarianism. Market authoritarianism, which is where you have you have one party rule, you know, the the Communist Party of China, the people within the People's Republic of China, but still just enough elements of a free market, just enough encouragement of industry and innovation to keep the economy from collapsing or to maintain the appearance of an economy that's not collapsing. I suspect there are some differences between the market authoritarianism of mainland China and this principle of socialism with the human face. Uh, we'll consider some of the differences a little bit later on. Uh, nonetheless, there was definite dissatisfaction among the Soviet Union with what was going on as a result of the Prague Spring. And so on the night of August 20th to 21st, 1968, a quarter million Warsaw Pact troops supported by approximately 5,000 tanks rolled into the Czechoslovakia and rolled into the capital of Prague and began occupying the city occupying the country. Now, the Soviets themselves portrayed, the, they used the term uh, fraternal intervention. And there's, there's this one perspective that some of the more conservative elements within the Czech Communist Party were saying, you know, Dubček, the country is out of control. Dubček is unable to maintain law and order. So, you know, somebody in the Soviet Union, please come and help us. That's, that's one point of view that's very often portrayed in sort of historical accounts of that period. Uh, so the, the Warsaw Pact countries that were involved in this invasion included, of course, the USSR, also Bulgaria, Hungary, and Poland. Uh, it's interesting to note that East Germany did not participate in the invasion. According to some sources that I've consulted, they provided logistical support, but they didn't actually provide any troops or any actual tanks. Now, Albania and Romania refused to participate in the invasion. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, according to some uh, analyses of the events, 
the, the, the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia was actually a bit of a public relations blunder for the Soviet Union. And it led to some tensions and to some disagreements, even among Eastern Bloc countries, even among communist countries. Uh, so Albania and Romania were very strongly against the invasion and refused to participate in it. So I'd like to say a few words now about the response to the invasion. And the response to the, from the West was, I would say, largely fairly tepid and unprincipled. Huh, does that sound familiar at all? Uh, so sure enough, there was a, an emergency meeting of the United Nations, and the Western countries made a show of being outraged and condemning the invasion. But we have to bear in mind the broader context. This was very much at the height of the Cold War. The Western countries were extremely concerned about further antagonizing the Soviet Union. And so any question of military intervention or military assistance to Czechoslovakia was absolutely out of the question. Again, you can see lots of parallels between that and the situation today. One thing though, to give the Western countries a little bit of credit, one thing they did quite well was processing refugees who left Czechoslovakia. So this actually brings us to the issue of the, the Czechoslovak response to the invasion. Uh, needless to say, there were mass protests ac across the country. Hundreds of Czech and Slovak citizens were killed uh, in the days of the invention of the of the invasion and the days following the invasion. And uh, so there were a lot of Czechoslovak nationals who were outside the country at the time of the invasion who chose to remain outside the country, who chose not to return, and who went to various Western countries. After the invasion, there was a window of about four or five months, say from about September to about January of 69, where it was relatively easy for Czech and Slovak citizens to leave the country and go elsewhere. So during that period, during that four to five month window, approximately 70,000 Czechoslovak citizens settled in the West. And the, West, the Western countries, to their credit, opened their borders, uh, processed the refugees fairly swiftly and fairly efficiently. Uh, and so among these 70,000 refugees, there were 12,000 who came here to Canada. Among them, my mother and father, who had just recently been married. So, uh, so the Western countries did a, a very good thing in that respect, welcoming the refugees with open arms and making it easy for them to settle in and uh, integrate into the various Western countries. Now, I mentioned that the response from the West was fairly non-committal, fairly tepid. There was there was one country in particular which denounced the Soviet invasion, the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in very, shall we say, uncompromising terms. And that was China. Indeed, both uh, Chairman Mao and President Chu Enlai denounced the Soviet, the Warsaw Pact invasion very vociferously. There have been a lot of speculations about why this was the case. One explanation that has been offered is that China was actually concerned about a possible invasion of their country. Consider this. So the Soviet Union was setting itself up as some sort of an arbiter of what is proper socialism and what is not proper socialism. And their reason for invading Czechoslovakia as well yeah, they claim to be good communists, but they're, they're really not being communist enough. And the Chinese were thinking, whoa, what if we are the next in the crosshairs of the Soviet Union? So there, there's, I think there's definitely a perspective that the Chinese were worried that they might be next 
on the on the menu of countries to be invaded by the Warsaw Pact and by the Soviet Union. So that's one example of, a, of an interesting international response to the invasion. One thing, one more thing I will say about the domestic response within Czechoslovakia. This is, I would say, one of the most tragic aspects of this story. There were a couple of young Czech students. One of the most famous was Jan Palach, P-A-L-A-C-H, Jan Palach. He was a 20-year-old economics student in Prague. And what he did was this. So one fine day, he walked into the Wenceslas Square. That's the main square in the center of Prague. And he set himself on fire to protest the invasion of his country. He died of his injuries three days later in hospital. Uh, now, I can't resist here drawing a bit of a connection between our modern uh, campus social justice warriors with their, you know, their feeling of being offended by other people's free speech and their need for safe spaces to avoid being triggered by ideas they disagree with. Here is a young man a 20-year-old student with his whole life ahead of him, who to protest the invasion of, of his country, he chose this very public, very gruesome way of immolating himself. Uh, it makes for an interesting contrast between uh, the mentality and the morals of young people, say, 50-some-odd years ago, and what we often see uh, among young people today. Uh, I have a little bit more to say about some of the consequences of the invasion and some of the implications but before we do that, let me just check in with our producer, Daniel. Do we have any comments from our viewers or super chats at this point? We have a super chat from Bonnie. Thank you so much. And uh, that's all so far. Okay. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your contributions and your support. One of the points that I wanted to talk about, specifically one of the points that Nico suggested we should talk about is if it hadn't been for the, the Warsaw Pact tanks rolling into the country, would the socialism with a human face have succeeded in, in Czechoslovakia? And I think to answer that question, we need to consider something about the sense of life of the country, the sense of the predominant sense of life in Central Europe, Eastern Europe. I mentioned earlier on the parallel with China, the parallel with what uh, Scott McDonald calls the market authoritarianism, which is this kind of uneasy equilibrium between one single party rule and the principles of communism with some economic freedom, some semblance of a free market. To evaluate that, we need to consider something about the respective histories and the respective sense of life of these two very different parts of the world. Something that's very deeply ingrained in the Chinese psyche, this is something that uh, Mr. McDonald is talking about, uh, it's, it's this principle of harmony, which comes up again and again in Taoist thinking, in Confucianist thinking. Harmony, as, as the Chinese think about, is this, uh, it's this idea that everybody knows his place in society. So the task of the government is to rule over the people. The task of the bureaucrats is administrative and then the workers and the peasants obey they do their various tasks and within the family the father is the head and the uh, the children owe reverence and deference to their father so that kind of hierarchical social organization is something that is very deeply ingrained in in chinese culture we don't quite see that to the same degree in continental europe 
continent, continental Europe, because it's because to some extent it was emerging out of that ancient Greek Greco-Roman tradition of reason, individualism, uh, political liberty, which of course went through that long period of slumber in the Middle Ages. But I think there was there was always that element there. I don't think that that kind of equilibrium between communism and market reforms, I don't think it would have been stable in the long run. I think one of two things would have happened. Either eventually the liberalizing, democratizing elements would have been simply overwhelmed by the more collectivistic elements. Or another possibility is that something like the Velvet Revolution, which was the eventual overthrow of communism, and the over eventual departure of uh, the Soviet overlords in 1989, something like the Velvet Revolution may have actually happened a little bit sooner. It's it's very difficult to say, but it is possible. Uh, in this in this con in this connection, I can't resist mentioning an interesting story. In 1987, so that was during the period of Perestroika. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev paid a visit to Prague, and during that visit, some journalist in Prague asked a question of Gorbachev or of Gorbachev's spokesman and said, what, what is the difference between Dubček and the Prague Spring on the one hand and your perestroika on the other hand? And Gorbachev's response was 17 years. So it, it's possible that something like that might have happened earlier. A lot of that depends, again, on the the consistency of the philosophy, the consistency of the sense of life of the people. Now, to, for a different, slightly different comparison, there is this certain element in what I would call the Anglo-American sense of life, this strong resistance to political tyranny, which runs like a thread from the Magna Carta through the second treatise of government all the way up to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, there's really very nothing like that on the continent, in continental Europe. Uh, here I'd like to cite a comment that Rand herself makes in one of the essays in, I think it's in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, where she compares the French Revolution with the American Revolution, the American War of Independence. And I'm fairly, freely paraphrasing here, but she says in effect uh, that the French in 1789 were demanding liberty, equality, and fraternity. What they got was Robespierre and the guillotine. In 1776, the Americans were demanding the rights of man and led by political philosophers, philosophers in the Lockean tradition, they achieved it. I'm highly suspicious, or I'm highly skeptical of whether that kind of mentality, that really strong principled resistance to tyranny, which we find again and again in English history. I mentioned the Magna Carta, the, the English Civil War of the mid 1600s, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, to say nothing of the developments in North America in the past two or two or 300 years. We, I think we see very little of that. It's, it's extremely rare that you come across in European, continental European thinking, a really strong defense of the rights of man. You, you see glimmers of it in Voltaire and the French encyclopedies. You see a little bit of it in Friedrich Schiller and some other thinkers on the continent, but I don't think it's quite of, alive enough in the minds of the people. So, and, and this is one of the things that makes Central Europe in particular such, a, such an uneasy balance of power. Why Central Europe seems always poised on the edge of 
authoritarianism and democracy, of socialism and capitalism. It's this, it's this very, very delicate tipping point. I, I read some articles recently actually coming from Czechoslovakia just in the past couple of weeks. So needless to say, last week on the 21st of August, there were all kinds of speeches and demonstrations commemorating the anniversary of Prague Spring, commemorating the anniversary of the invasion of Czechoslovakia. There were speeches made by the current Czech president and other important political leaders. One theme that came up in a lot of these speeches and articles is that very little has changed as far as Russia is concerned in terms of Russia's ex imperialist, expansionist ambitions. What happened 55 years ago, you can see the clear parallels between what's going on today in the Ukraine, what's going on with Bulgaria and certain other other parts of the, the former Eastern Bloc. It's again, it's very difficult to tell what's going to happen. What, what's going to happen with the Ukrainian people? Are they going to have the intellectual strength, the, the military strength to resist the occupation? Are we going to get sort of a, this 20 year slumber that we saw in, in Czechoslovakia between the invasion and between the Velvet Revolution? It's very, very difficult to tell. And uh, once again, if, if we had Nikos here to fill us in on some of the foreign policy aspects, he might give us a different perspective. Perhaps we can do, I can do a follow-up discussion with him sometime. Okay, uh, I need to wrap up soon. I've got a class with Yaron Brooks starting in a few minutes that I need to get ready for. So just uh, very quickly, Daniel, any final comments, super chats from our audience? And also, are there any announcements about upcoming shows today and in the next couple of days? Uh, no more super chats, but in eight minutes, we have the reality show. And then at 10 p.m. UK time, we have TV talk. So that's what's coming up. And also tomorrow we have uh, both the history of astronomy course with Joseph Tobankin and the mock trial. Uh, but that's only available to ARCUK members of the level platinum and above. So I'm putting the link in the chat for the reality show and to become a member. Okay, thanks very much, Daniel. Thank you to all our viewers, supporters, subscribers, and contributors for joining me today as I pay tribute to this very important uh, event in history. I'd like to just close with a personal comment that even though uh, it's a little too late for me to express this in person since uh, my parents died some months ago, uh, earlier this year, but I, I think they made a very sensible decision leaving the country, uh, settling here in Canada, giving my sister and me the opportunity to grow up in a, a much better political system, a much better sense of life. So uh, I'd like to conclude with those personal words of thanks. Until then, uh, I wish you all the best of premises. Thank you very much.